Amen. Well, good morning. Good summer morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. We are closing our work in the book of Isaiah. Only 11 months. That's all it took. Great job, everybody. We are going to just to kind of give you a roadmap. We are going to look at the last bit of Isaiah today, and then I'm going to do one final sermon on Isaiah next week where we just kind of recap the major themes of the book um, and just spend some time thinking about the book as a whole together next week. And then we'll have a little bit of a bridge series in the summer where we want to talk a little bit about uh, pace of life uh, and how we walk in spiritual rhythms that God calls us into. We're gonna do that at the end of the summer. And then starting in the, in the fall, we're gonna begin a journey through the book of Colossians. So uh, pray and trust that that will be fruitful for us. So just kind of give you uh, the roadmap. Now, as you're turning to Isaiah 65, and we're gonna look at that together again today, uh, question for you. Let me just get a little survey of my church family here. How many of you are pro-sushi? When I say sushi, how many of you are pro-sushi? Okay, handful. So how many of you then, not to, this probably is obvious, those of you who didn't raise your hands, but how many of you are anti-sushi? You are like, yeah, absolutely. So, so growing up, I was in an anti-sushi family. Now, the, the problem with that is that I never tried sushi. I was just told that sushi was a terrible thing and you should never have it. Right, and, and, and this seemed like a logical conclusion because if things can be cooked, they probably should be cooked. Right, those sorts of things. And so the problem with that is that I then married an amazing woman who loves sushi. And so every time we would go out to dinner, sushi would be recommended from one side of the car and the other side of the car, which is my side, would find reasons and excuses why tonight should not be the night for sushi. Uh, it usually involved red meat being superior to sushi. All kinds of reasons, right? So lo and behold, we come somewhere early in our marriage to Amanda's birthday. And on someone's birthday, it feels like it's a good idea that they should choose the restaurant that you attend for their birthday dinner. And this seemed reasonable to me until my wife decided that she wanted sushi. Yeah. At which point I thought, let's, let's not do this. How about we go, you know, there's a nice steakhouse. No, so... We went to a, a, a sushi place in Austin where we lived at the time. And I found out that the reason I did not like sushi was because I had never tried sushi. And I had it, and y'all, it was, now if I was in Texas and I said, y'all, everyone would go, we're with you. We totally understand where you're going from here, right? That's a conjunction, you and all put together in case you didn't understand, it, it's, I think, maybe use guys <laughs> is the equivalent. Or Ewans, I've been told. Ewans. You and all, y'all, so just for what it's worth. So, y'all, I went for sushi. It was amazing, right? Spicy tuna, right? So good. I had no idea, right? And you're thinking, what on earth does that have to do with Isaiah 65? Well, here's what it has to do with Isaiah 65. Uh, we have been walking through the book of Isaiah, and right, we've seen these two major themes. In fact, we titled the entire series, The Might and the Mercy of God. And so we've seen again and again where God has declared his power. Can you recall some times in Isaiah where God has declared to us his power? And often that power is seen in judgment where he says, those who oppose me and those who oppose my people in this world will come under my judgment. Uh, at some point that will occur. But you, I hope, also remember that, that 
almost at every point, not every single time, but almost at every point as we've gone through this book where we have seen God declare that he will exercise his might in judgment, quickly on the heels of that has come a promise that for those who would come to him and trust him and follow him and walk with him, that his mercy would triumph. And that it is his ambition that his mercy would triumph in the life of people. And so we get words of might and we delight that our God is mighty. And then on the heels of that, we hear that he is merciful. And as we come to the end of the book of Isaiah, you might think, well, how do you end a book that has been as broad in scope and as uh, immense in promises and as insightful on the nature and character of God? I mean, how, if you are God writing through Isaiah, how do you bring that to a conclusion? And God's answer to that is to say, I'm gonna tell you what I'm going to do in the future and what it will look like when my mercy triumphs once and for all. And so he's gonna talk to us about the new heaven and the new earth. These terms that if you've been in church a while, you've maybe heard. This idea that when Jesus returns and after he reigns on the earth for a time and then finally defeats evil once and for all, then he will establish a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell for all eternity and there will no longer be any effect of sin in that place and therefore there will no longer be death in that place. And life will be radically different than how we understand it to be here and now. Now, some of you might have been like me. When I was growing up, I grew up with a complete misconception, kind of like never being exposed to sushi and not knowing that it was really good, at least in my opinion, right? I didn't grow up with any exposure to this idea of where we're going to spend eternity. I had this notion that if I were to die, Hebrews says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those who are in Christ. And I knew that. And so I sort of understood that if I were to die today, I would enter into this place we call heaven and be with God. And that is a true statement according to the word of God, but that that would just kind of be it. That would be the rest of my existence for all eternity and I probably had some notion of floating on a cloud and being some kind of a spiritual being and maybe there were harps there and there was a lot of singing and it just, if I was honest, my like 15-year-old self, that sounded really boring, right? It did. Now, one, I have come to understand that's a misconception of, of what it means to be in the presence of God. It will not be boring to be in the presence of God because he is all of our delight and he is good and to sing his praises will be a great delight. But I had no concept that there was something different than just an experience of heaven in the presence of God that we experience if we die before Christ returns and where we will live for all eternity after Christ returns. Maybe you're like me. Maybe, Maybe you're here today and you've never heard this concept before. But it's one that the Bible promises and talks about a lot. So the, the, the relation to the sushi story is just this, is that we can't delight in and reap the benefits of the promises of God, this new heaven and new earth, the ultimate triumph of his mercy that he's gonna paint for us here at the end of Isaiah. We can't do that if we don't know what it will be like. Now here's the thing, get, get your brain ready because there are some aspects of this new heaven and new earth that are really beyond our comprehension and yet God takes the time to describe what they will be like for us. And if he takes the time to describe it then we can assume that he does that for a great reason. And I think pinnacle among those reasons is because he wants us to experience and walk in the hope 
that we have of this new heaven and new earth. And my friends, to limit your understanding or your thinking on, your intentionality around trying to comprehend this new heaven and new earth is to limit the amount of hope you can experience in this life. If you wanna live a life filled with hope, you need to understand the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to prepare for us. Anybody seen the movie Shawshank, the Shawshank Redemption, old movie from the 90s, right, about kind of life in this prison environment? And one of the great lines from that movie is this, hope is a good thing. It may be the best of things. Yeah, you all remember that? I love that line from that movie. And it's such a good reminder of the power and the importance of hope. So here's been my prayer for you this week. My prayer for me is I've prepared this text and just gotten the rich blessing of spending the week trying to comprehend and wrap my mind around what it will be like to live in this kind of place one day. Uh, my hope has been that through our looking at this text together, and through kind of closing out the book of Isaiah in this, that what it would do is it would fill your heart with deep affection for a God who would create a place like this that you might dwell in it. For a God who's mighty enough and merciful enough to create a new heaven and new earth like the one we're gonna see painted for us here. And that that affection being sort of um, fanned into a flame in your heart would cause you to also be filled with hope that you would be filled with hope. Whatever your situation, whatever your challenge, that you would find yourself today overwhelmed by the hope of this future reality for you who are in Christ. And that perhaps you might, you might find yourself, if you're honest with yourself, saying, you know, I, I, have, I have you know, given credence to the gospel, the idea that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, but if I'm honest, he sits kind of at the periphery of my life. He sits kind of on the edge. I can't say with any amount of certainty or honesty that he really dictates my life and my thinking, uh, my purpose, my agenda, that, that he doesn't really touch those things. M my hope, if that's how you would describe yourself today, is that you might see that a God who, would, who can do what it is that we're going to talk about doing, that he's going to do, that he is uh, the only answer is to put him at the center of your life, is to take him in and say everything must revolve around him, that you would have a picture in your mind planted there by the Holy Spirit of the future waiting for you and that it would be a rich blessing to you. That, that's been my hope. So we're gonna look at it today. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. Now again, we talked about these themes, and in these last two chapters, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna cover every verse in chapter 65 and 66, and you have seen again and again what you're gonna see if you were to go home today and read all of chapter 65 and read all of chapter 66, you're gonna see Isaiah do what he's done many times. He's gonna, he's gonna vacillate back and forth between talking about the judgment of God for those who oppose him and oppose his people, and then he's gonna follow on the heels of that with these promises of the deliverance of his people for a new heaven and a new earth. And, and, and they're radically great promises. And he's gonna go back and forth between them all to get our attention, I think, really centrally on these verses in chapter 65, verses 17 through 25, this very full, rich description of the new heavens and the new earth. So let's read it together. And then what I wanna do is talk about six ways that life will be different in the new heaven and the new earth and see if we can't wrap our mind around it. So beginning in verse 17. For behold... 
I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So as we look at this, there's a lot to unpack there. Would you agree? That's a rich description, yes? So there's a lot there. And, you know, what's the expression um, that we have? It's like death and taxes, right? Right? The, the certainty of those things uh, are, you know, they've become a colloquialism for us. As, as if you want to say something is certain, you say it's as certain as death and taxes, right? Now, a government could decide to stop taking taxes. I won't get into the politics of how that would happen or how it would, what it would do, right? But it could. But can death ever be undone in this life? The reality is death is a certainty for all of us. That's the point of that little colloquialism, that little uh, phrase or statement. And so it's really hard, I think, to get our minds around what it will be like to live in a world where death will no longer be a reality. And death will no longer be a reality because sin will no longer be a reality. I mean, just take a moment and ponder all the ways that sin affects your life. Now, if you've never thought about this, you need to recognize that sin and living in a fallen world, one affected by sin, it affects every thought you think, every action you take, every relationship you have, every word you speak, every interaction with any other created thing is affected by the fact that we live in a world infected with sin. You have never experienced one moment or one breath or one fleeting thought or one one action free from the shackles of sin. Now, in Christ we have redemption and, and purposefulness and there is work that is done, but all of it still lies underneath the blanket of living in a world that is yet to be renewed, recreated, redeemed by Jesus. So it's hard for us. The reason I'm getting into this is because I want you to understand how difficult it is and how much it requires, I think, a mental and even an emotional discipline to ponder and to think about a new heaven and a new earth and the implications of that in a way that is actually helpful. You can't just give sort of a fleeting thought to it and imagine, oh, that will stir up hope in me because I have some 
fleeting notion of an idea of what it will be like. It requires pressing in deeply to be able to understand what this will be like because we've never experienced it. But God gives us a description. So can we walk through it together then? And let's look at six things that will be different in God's new heaven and new earth. Here's the first, found in verse 17. We will no longer be plagued by regret. And I love this. Think about how many things you regret. Can you think, if I say regret, does something come to mind? Yeah, something done to you, something you've done, probably I can think about it. And when I think about it, I get this creeping feeling of kind of, uh, it comes up my neck and just makes me shudder and makes me feel that sense of discomfort. Uh, I don't even like to think about those things from my past, right? Do you feel the same way? Now look at what he says at the beginning of verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now that second phrase, or come into mind, is Isaiah's way of saying it won't even be, it's one thing to remember them, that kind of conveys an intentionality, like I'm going to intentionally think back on this thing. And perhaps you would say, okay, I'll no longer in the new heaven and new earth have to think about the remember intentionally the former things. But he's saying, oh, they won't even pop into your mind. They won't even be something that you, that you can't keep from popping into your mind. My guess is at times you've had regrets and you don't want to be thinking about them, but they pop into your mind because you encounter a circumstance or a situation that reminds you of that thing. And you think, oh, yuck, I hate even being reminded that that took place in my life or that I ever did that or made that choice or whatever it may be. Right? You, you hate thinking about it the way. Now, here's what I don't know. I don't know if what Isaiah is describing here when he says, the former things will no longer be remembered, nor will they come to mind. I don't know if it means that the new will be so amazing and so fantastic that we won't even recall what this old world was like. That's possible. He could be saying, it's like we'll just forget this ever happened. We won't even recall it. It's so tainted and diminished into comparison to what will be. That would be pretty awesome. At the very least, if he's not saying that, because there's the possibility that he's saying essentially uh, using this terminology to say, it's not that we won't remember that this world ever existed or that there was the effect of sin in the fall. It's that we will no longer dwell on it or be hindered by our memory of those things from the past. We will look to them and say, praise God, hallelujah, you have delivered and made a new thing. And we will no longer feel that sense of shame that comes upon us from all the former things. Now we will only ever perfectly delight in all that God has done to work redemption. Now can you fathom for a second what it will be like to live with no regrets? Because here's what I find all the time when I talk to believers, one of the realities that happens for us, happens to me too, by the way, is that we, we do something that's sinful and we recognize that it's sinful and we hate that we did it. And so we feel sorrow, we repent, we seek forgiveness, and God promises if we ask for forgiveness, what will he give us, church? Forgiveness, this is the promise of the gospel. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sins, and we come to him, and we ask for forgiveness. This is what First John says, if we confess our sins, right, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, First John 1, 9. 
But what I find again and again when I talk to Christians is that there's this understanding, I have repented, I have sought forgiveness and received it. But then on the other side of that forgiveness, we still live in the shame and regret as if forgiveness has never occurred. Right, it's one thing, regret has a place in the life of a believer because it can lead you to repentance and repentance leads to forgiveness. And so regretting that we've done something that's wrong, is that good? Yes, of course. But continuing to allow regret to inform our decision-making patterns by bringing up the shame of our past and then causing us to sort of cope with that reality by saying, I'm afraid of ever even sort of drawing near again to anything that might be in that family of thought. And so we move over here. It can lead to all manner of dysfunctional kinds of decisions because we make decisions not based out of forgiveness, but out of shame when forgiveness has been given. Now again, I'm talking when forgiveness has been sought and obtained through confession and repentance, right? So the reality is that a world where we experience no regrets is, I think, totally foreign to us. But that's what he's saying about the new heaven and new earth. So just think about this for a minute. Whatever your regret is, if you ponder that thing here for a second, which is exactly what he says we won't do there, but I'm gonna have you do it here, right? If you, if you think about that thing, now recognize this, you'll never think about that thing again. Whatever that thing is you regret, you will never ever have it brought to mind again. Think about the freedom of that. You will never feel that creeping shame and embarrassment that kind of creeps up the back of your neck, right? You will not live, I love this, I, you will not live in fear of doing something you will regret. You will no longer live in fear of doing something you will regret, right? And then lastly, you will not be plagued by patterns of avoidance and coping that your regret creates, causing you to make less than wise decisions going forward. When verse 17 says, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, at the very least, at the very least, what they mean is that in this new heaven, in this new earth, you and I will no longer be plagued by the regret caused by our sin. Now somebody say amen to that because that's a good promise. Now, okay, the next thing in verse 18 and verse 25, the second thing that we see that will be different in this new heaven and new earth is that we will fully enjoy and fully express joy in all that God has made. Or to say that another way, we will finally fully enjoy everything God has made. And we will finally fully express our joy in all that God has made. So look at verse 18. Here's what he says. That he begins the, the, the verse with the word but, right? So in other words, in contradiction or in opposition to what, ju- what came before. So what came before was this idea that in, in, um, in this old world, you have these things that you remember that you despise and you don't like, right? And he says, it's not gonna be like that. Instead of being like that, but what will be the case? But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So he says, rather than sort of dwell on the past, we will be a people who are glad and rejoice forever in that which God creates. So the first thing that we see there is that God is essentially saying, when the effects of sin and death are gone from a world, 
then what will happen is the people who live in that world will finally, for the first time, not have their ability to enjoy the things that I have made dampened by sin. There are, there are two ways that our enjoyment of God's created world get dampened by sin. One is that the creation itself has its ability to create enjoyment limited by sin, dampened down by sin. The other is that those of us who seek to enjoy God's created world have our ability to experience enjoyment dampened by sin. Now, if you've ever gone out for a long walk in the woods, have you marveled at the beauty of God's creation? Yes, how many of you like to get out in the mountains? Yeah, I love to get out in the mountains, love to just be on, you know, out in, in the middle of nowhere. And the beauty and the joy of that, right, God says in his word, in the Psalms in particular, that that points to the fact that he is God and that he has created. But I want you to think about this for a second because as marvelous and as beautiful as you have thought those Rocky Mountains in Colorado were, right, or the Appalachians or whatever it is that you get out in that mountain range, nothing could be prettier than this. What we know is that because we live in a world where everything is affected by sin, those things are limited in their ability to create enjoyment in you. There will come a day when God recreates those things, when your experience of joy in the beauty of God's creation that you experience now will be minuscule in comparison to what it will be like when it's all made new. Now, if you thought you enjoyed, enjoyed it now, wait until it's remade. Wait until the shackles of sin are taken off of all the created world. It's what Romans 8 is talking about when Paul says the created world looks at believers as the first fruits of God's creation and redemption. It says they groan, they groan eagerly awaiting for the sons and the daughters of God to be released from the effects of sin. In other words, because they know that when we are, they will be. And so the creation looks at us and groans with longings to be released from the shackles, the effects of being fallen. Now look at verse 25, because it gives an expression of this. Verse 25 says this, and he's quoting actually back to Isaiah chapter 11, but he says this in verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What Isaiah is getting at there is in the new creation, there's an extreme version of the fallenness of creation and its inability to produce joy and enjoyment. And the extreme version of that is that we find nature to be a threatening thing, that there is danger in the created world as a result of sin. And Isaiah is painting a picture that when that comes to pass, Wolves and lambs will lie down together and lions will no longer be something to fear because they'll eat straw. In other words, the brokenness that has occurred between us and the created world will no longer be the case. Anybody ever been camping? I'm not talking about camping like 100 yards off the road. I'm talking about like backpacking deep into the woods, right? And you pitch your tent and then have you ever heard a mountain lion that didn't feel that far away? What is the feeling that you experience there? Now, some of you guys are going, I get up my knife and I feel tough and I'm like ready to go. No, you don't. <laughs> You're scared just like I'm scared, right? Or if you've heard the pack of wolves in the, what seemed like maybe a couple hundred yards away, it's probably five miles away, but you know, what seems right there, it's frightening, right? Why is it frightening? Because we live with strife between us and the created world, right? 
And God is saying in the new heavens, in the new earth, all the effects of sin will be undone. Included in that is the fact that you live with strife between you and other parts of creation that you fear and have to tame and have to try to master. And he says, that'll no longer be the case. Those things will be done away with. Now, I love that. I love that picture, right? That's the extreme version. But again, the smaller version of that is just simply what he's saying here is you will finally enjoy things the way you were meant to enjoy them, both because your limited ability to experience joy that's caused by sin, that will be done away with, and the limited ability of those things to cause and create joy will be done away with by sin. Now, the second thing I said that this verse says, because look, it doesn't just say, be glad. It doesn't just say, be glad in that which I create. It says, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Now, rejoice is a what? It's a verb, right? It's an action. It's a declaration of our joy in something. Now, how many of you have ever felt limited in your ability to express your enjoyment of something? Right, where you've ever felt like, and, and whether it's because you just didn't feel like you had the words or whether it's because, like me sometimes, you feel a little tied up and feel like something about us sometimes feels inappropriate expressing joy in things. For some reason, we feel inappropriate sometimes praising and expressing joy in people. Have you ever wanted to compliment someone and felt like, uh, maybe I shouldn't, they'll get a big head or I don't know what goes through your mind sometimes. I've got a good buddy who is so good at this and I love this about him. He says, whenever, and I really believe he does this, whenever I feel a spike of affection for someone who's a friend of mine, I pick up the phone, I call them or I text them or if I'm present with them, I tell them exactly what I'm thinking about why I love them right then and there. I marvel at that because I stink at that, right? And, And some of us are, you know, we, we're so hemmed in. I mean, let's just take it to its kind of final reality in our corporate life together, right? How many of you have ever walked in here on a Sunday morning and you've come to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the God who has triumphed over sin and death in his son, Jesus Christ, and you feel inhibited in your worship of him? You're worried about what somebody else is gonna think or you feel like perhaps that's just emotionalism if I raise my hands or I don't know what you think, but what, whatever goes through your mind in that moment, the promise of the new creation is that you will not just finally enjoy everything the way it was meant to be enjoyed, you will be able to express that joy in rejoicing in all the ways it was meant to be expressed. You will finally fully express your joy now, some of you are thinking, I, I don't mean that means everybody's expression of joy will look identical. We're made differently. We're different people. God intends that we have different personalities, and that's wonderful. And so we express delight in, in different ways. But we will all rejoice fully and completely. You will not be inhibited in any single way from expressing your joy in all that God has done in his created world. You will express it perfectly. Isn't that good to know? Good to think about, yeah. Okay, so look at the third thing then. I think, yeah, we're on the third thing. So the third thing in verse 19, God will be fully glad in us. Look at what he says. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem. So he's talking here specifically about the nation of Israel. And Jerusalem throughout the book of Isaiah has been a picture of what we see in Revelation 21. He talks about it here in Isaiah, that there's gonna be a new Jerusalem that's gonna come down out of heaven. And so this new Jerusalem is 
emblematic of God's heavenly city and everybody from every nation who worships Jesus coming into that heavenly city to dwell there in the presence of God. So he's focused on Jerusalem, but again, these promises apply to all of us who are in Christ. So he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and be glad in my people. Now that's a little like read past it kind of a line when you read this text, but pause for a moment and consider what that means. God will be glad in his people. Now the reality that we experience now is to know, and I hope you know this, that if you're in Christ, you are loved by God. Nothing can undo that, nothing can change that. But we also live in the reality that we are, because of sin, not not uh, everything about us is something God is glad or delights in. Would you agree with that? There are things we do, things we think, things we say that clearly do not make God glad. And the promise of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth is that God will finally be fully glad, perfectly glad in his people. There will be nothing No corner of your soul, no little aspect of your personality, no word you ever speak, no action you ever take that your Father in heaven will ever look at and feel anything other than perfect gladness in. Can you fathom that? Think for a moment about being a little kid again and how much you longed to have a parent say, I'm proud of you and you make me glad. I I love who and what you are. That longing for that experience exists in the human heart because we exist to make God glad. And one day when he returns and he makes all things right and all the effects of sin are undone from us and we are fully and completely redeemed and made righteous, and sin is eradicated forever, your God will look at you and say, I am glad in you. There will be nothing, no hint of anything that you feel the need to hide from God. Fourth thing. In verse 20, we see that we will live free from the fear of tragedy So in verse 20, he says, no more shall there be in it, in the new heavens and in the new earth, an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Okay, so let me answer something there real quick before we kind of discuss this idea of not living uh, out of fear of the effects of tragedy. The first thing that we see there is you might, you might ask, well, it looks like what he's saying in the new heaven and new earth, death is still gonna happen. That he's saying, yeah, we'll live longer, right? So no longer will we, will an infant have his life cut short. No longer will a person die at 100 years old, but maybe it's 150, 160, maybe it's 200, maybe it's 500, right? He's using a metaphor there or um, sort of poetic language to talk about the idea that what happens in this life, that lives are cut short, from what we would expect them to be. He's using an idea of saying, no, no, life will go on in great length. In fact, later in the text, you probably noticed, he says, my people's lives will be like, like the existence of trees. In other words, trees live a really, really long time, right? Well, in Revelation 21, in a description of the new heaven and the new earth there, what we hear there is that death will be no more. So in other words, if we bring Revelation 21 and Isaiah 65 together, what we understand is that he's using poetic language here to essentially talk about the idea 
that death will no longer exist, nor will the tragedy that we often experience of lives cut short and that experience, which is really acute in its painfulness for us, those things won't happen anymore. Now listen, some of you have experienced, if you have experienced untimely death of a loved one, of a, of a parent, of a spouse, of a child, then you know what this means. You know the pain of that is almost unbearable. That you have probably sat and thought, I'm not sure I can take the next breath. This hurts so much, I cannot fathom what this, how to continue to exist in this life for any longer with this amount of pain in my heart and in my mind. Some of you have experienced that. And the promise that God is giving to us is that that will no longer be the case in this place. You will no longer experience the pain of the tragedy of untimely death. In fact, you won't experience the pain of death at all because all things will be made new and death will be no more. Now think about how often we make decisions based on avoiding the possible tragedies of someone being harmed or possibly even dying, right? I just spent the last several weeks uh, on vacation with my kids and we were at, around pools a lot. And I spent, my wife and I basically run alternating shifts to make sure someone is always what? Watching them, right? Because we're afraid of the possible tragedy that could occur if someone is not watching. Now that's not foolishness, that's wisdom to do that, right? But we, that's just one example of we spend moment after moment thinking about eliminating the possibility of tragedy from every decision we make. What, what can we do to prevent and to eliminate and to create as much safety and to eliminate as much harm? Like, how can we do that? Think about a world where none of those tragedies are even possibilities and now you never think about them again in any decision you ever make. Like if your job is risk management, you're out of a job. Okay, sorry, we'll find you another one. The new heaven and the new earth. No more tragedy, no more being led around by the nose, by the possibility of tragedy even, because death is no more. Next thing he says, with these last two kind of quick, but in verse 21 and 22, he says, we will finally enjoy all the fruit of our labor. Look at how he says it. He says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. And then at the end of verse 22, he says, my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. I love that phrase. I just like burn that in my brain. My chosen shall long enjoy the fruit of their labor, like the, the work of their hands, right? What he's getting at is, I mean, how many of you, the, the effects of the fall, right? When, in Genesis chapter three, when sin enters the world, 
what happens is there, one of the results of that is that God says, now your labor, now your work will be harder than it should have been and produce less than it should have produced. That's the simple summation of what has happened to our work now. And all of us experience it. Everything we put our hands to is limited in its successfulness and it requires way more work to even sort of bleed that amount of success out of it. Whereas when sin is eliminated, all of our work will produce all of the fruit that it always should have produced. Now, like if you're in the fruit growing business, which we have some people who are fruit growers here, just fathom for a moment, not having to, you will still tend the tree, right? But the soil will be perfect. The tree will never have one apple drop off too early. You will not have to fight the effects of a drought. You will not have to fight the effects of flooding. None of that will ever occur. Every crop will be perfect as it was meant to be given. And it will produce it with, uh, with the pleasurable work of tending. Tending and overseeing and cultivating now, the other thing to be reminded of here, friends, is that perhaps you had a view that said that once we sort of are done with this life, the toil of work will cease. But that is far from a biblical understanding of work because work existed for Adam in the garden far before sin entered the world. So work is not a result of sin. Work is something we do because we bear the image of God and he made us to work. We just experience work as cumbersome because of sin and we will go back to that garden-like state where all of our work will be completely and fully fruitful and enjoyable and productive. Think about that tomorrow morning when you go to the office. Right, and you're thinking, how is this not more productive than it is? Right, I would love, you know how long it takes to write one of these dang sermons? I sit there and stare at a blank screen for a long time and I read a lot of stuff. I will, I will spend hours and walk away and go, I didn't put a word on the page. Ugh. You know? Oh, to be able, I, I, I think I'm probably out of a job too since God is already present with us. I don't know what I'm going to do in this. I'll find something, I'm sure. But if, you know, if, if any preaching is needed, I guess, Maybe the sermons just like appear in my mouth and just come out. I don't know what happens. But yeah, we're, we experience such a lack of fruitfulness from our work and it will not be that way, right? Okay, last one, verse 24. He says, we will experience perfect communication with God. In verse 24, he says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. In other words, there's no separation between us and God in the new heavens and the new earth so that we find ourselves going, hey, I'm, I'm talking, God, and I'm not sure if you're responding. He will be responding before we've finished our sentence and we will know what he is communicating with us. There will be a perfect back and forth between us and God. Just out of curiosity, don't raise your hand, but just think about it. Are you waiting on God for something right now? Is there something you've been asking him for for some time that you just find yourself going, I'm still waiting? And the, tr the difficulty of this life is you have no guarantee what his answer to that is. Right? Maybe waiting for a spouse, waiting for a child, waiting for a child to come out of a difficult season of rebellion, waiting, 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 waiting. And none of it is promised to us. The thing that we are hoping for and waiting for is not necessarily promised to us on this side of eternity. 
But when we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, not only perhaps we will still wait for things, I I do not know, I cannot say for sure. Perhaps we will wait, but if we wait, we will wait with the full knowledge of assurance that anything that it is God wants us to have, we will absolutely have, and we will wait never wondering uh, why God has us waiting or what his purpose in having us wait would be, and we won't wait wondering if we're having a one-sided conversation with God. We will have perfect communication with our Lord. There will no longer be the, the diminishment of our ability to have a conversation with the Lord. We, we have a taste of that now in prayer, do we not? We have a taste of it now, but then, oh then, it will be like nothing we've ever known in our conversations with the Lord. So the question that, that is important to answer, to remind us of again, is how, how can this be, right? How, I mean, that's just, just what we read there is too good to be true, right? How can it be? Well, Isaiah gives us a little reminder that it's possible because of the, of the work of Jesus. And he says it this way, back in verse 25, I told you he's quoting Isaiah chapter 11 when he says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And that is a direct quote of Isaiah chapter 11. Now in Isaiah chapter 11, the chapter begins with the discussion saying, there is going to come one, speaking about Jesus, who will be, it says, the branch of Jesse. In other words, Jesse is King David's father and Jesus came in the line of King David. He's a prophet, the promised Messiah coming in the line of David. And so it's alluding to that. And then it begins to talk about how great the reign of this one, this root of Jesse, this branch of Jesse, how great it will be. And it says, as a part of that reign, he says, the lion will eat straw like an ox and the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The exact words that he's saying again here in chapter 65. But here in chapter 65, he gives us one additional line that is not in Isaiah chapter 11. And listen to what it is. And dust shall be the serpent's food. Now, why would Isaiah include that there? Because what he's pointing us back to is Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent, or Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceives Adam and Eve, leads them into temptation and sin, and then the curse that falls upon him is that he says, you will go on your belly and you will be in the dust. But then he says, you will strike the heel of the woman's seed, her son, right, her kids, you will strike their heel and they will crush your head. In Genesis 3, that's a promise of Jesus to come, that, he will, that the serpent will strike him, Satan will strike him at the cross, but he will ultimately crush the serpent. And Isaiah is pointing us back to that same prophecy of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3 by saying it's through his work that the serpent will now no longer strike the heel, but will do what? Eat the dust. This is what he will do. The serpent in the new creation now will not be a heel striker to cause difficulty for the purposes of God, but because of the one who has crushed the head, the serpent now will crawl on the belly and eat the dust. All that to say, if that's confusing in in any way, all that to say, he's alluding there again, here at the end of the book, one more time, to Jesus and saying he is the demonstration of the might of God, and he is the reason that the mercy of God will triumph. So come to him. Come and receive him and all that he offers. All 
who come to Christ will enter into the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, and experience the joy of life without sin and death. So let's pray together and let's sing to close our time. So worship team, if you'll come up. And let's pray, and again, church family, the hope is that we would be filled with hope by the promises of God and that we would see it and know how good it is. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can contemplate what it will be like when you rule completely and you eliminate all sin and death. We long for that day. We're eager for it. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you for not leaving us without a description of that day so that we don't have to ponder or, or wonder. Uh, we understand this description is only a description and it will be better than even what we've read here. But as we apply our minds to understand it, fill us with the hope of it so that we might live out the implications of the gospel. So we offer you praise now to close our time together as a church family, Lord, we want to sing your praises and about what you will do and who you are. All our delight is in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.